was, oh my gosh. It's so wonderful to have all of you here and to launch Talking Volumes with so many friends in the, in the theater. Thank you very much for supporting Talking Volumes and for coming out on a night like this. Now, if I asked you for a book that you found transformational, maybe it changed you as a reader, what would you say? For me, those books are Jane Eyre, the Poisonwood Bible, and Cutting for Stone. I mean, so it is just such an honor and a pleasure to have Dr. Verghese here. Um, he has returned to this idea of redemption in the covenant of water, and we're going to talk about that, but let's get him out on the stage, shall we? Give him the warmest of welcomes. As I was talking to people in the audience, I've been saying, he's every bit as wonderful as you want him to be. (laughs) Is that a lot to live up to? Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, what we all really want to know about is Oprah. No, we'll get to that. We'll get to that a little later. Um, Redemption is something that you tackled in Cutting for Stone, and it's something that you've come back to. And I'm curious about what what kinds of questions you go into conceiving a novel where redemption is going to be center stage? What are you asking yourself about that? I'm not sure that I begin the novel saying I'm going to make this about redemption, but uh, I do think that uh, one of the critiques of my book from the New York Times Book Review, which was very generous... Oh, who cares what they say? (laughs) but, But one thing that they said was all the characters are good, are too good. And, you know, my belief is that most of us are inherently good. And, uh, you know, some of us make horrible mistakes. And I think we spend our lifetime, you know, trying to redeem ourselves. Uh, and so, um, you know, that is my, that's my sort of innate belief about, about the human condition, is that we are trying to redeem ourselves. I remember Lee Marvin, who played the bad guys in the movies, was once asked by someone, how come you only pay, play bad guys? And he said, son, I've never played a bad guy in my life. Wow, wow good answer. And that's how you have to play it. You know, he, right. He's entering these characters, and they happen to do things that happen to be perceived as evil. But I don't think anybody sets out to say, I'm evil. We make mistakes. We seek redemption. I think um, your insistence that most of us are good sometimes that feels a little anachronistic, <laughs> doesn't it, in this world? How do you hang on to that? Why do you hang on to that? I think it's fundamentally true. I mean, clearly, there are times when you're challenged by, by that sort of a rule, but it's not so much a rule as a way of, of, a way of you know, going through the world. Uh, even if someone's manifest behavior is really upsetting, maybe it's the physician in me always thinks that there must be a cause behind this, and one day they'll see the light. At least that's the hope. Right. Um, It's interesting that all of the great religions counsel redemption in in different ways. And, you know, some of them have a a discipline of mutual responsibility, mutual accountability 
for redemption, that it just doesn't come to you um, unasked for, that you have to be accountable in some ways to receive it. I'm curious about what you think about that. Yeah, I think it's true. I think many many religions have a strong sense of sin and right. uh, the necess- necessity for forgiveness. But, you know, I, I really aren't, I'm not proselytizing about a religious view in the book, right. even though you know, people make that assumption. I'm really describing a time and a people, and my description is accurate for those people in that time. But I, 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 think, I actually think a better word than redemption or related to redemption is conscience. Mm. I think most of us have a conscience and a, a sense somewhere deep down that we've messed up. And at some point in our life, we want to make that right or we want to you know, purge ourselves of that, that, that thing that's weighing on us. Um, um, do you not agree? <laughs> I, I'm wondering, as you're saying that, whether that has some kind of spiritual root to it, or is that humanness? I think you... it's humanness. You know, I'm not trying to invoke a spiritual, mm-hmm. you know, way of being. I think it's, it's humanness. You know, I think it's too easy to characterize people by one action viewed in isolation and... Uh, you know, I think we see that a lot in medicine, where people made choices that have got them into a into a terrible place. But you don't necessarily treat them where they are now based on what they did in the past. You know, these are consequences, and you sense a lot of regret, a lot of remorse, and especially at the end of life, I think one sees a lot of you know making things right, a lot of um, healing. A lot of seeking forgiveness. Uh, it's a very impressive thing to witness, and maybe I'm unduly biased by that. I wonder what your experience is of being in the presence of someone who may have learned how long their life will be, and they are wrestling with that remorse. What's your role in a situation like that? Well, I often wonder what my role is. I've, I feel I've had the great privilege or the Misfortune, especially in the HIV/AIDS era, of witnessing you know many young lives, which is particularly poignant, come to an end. And um, you know what made it so poignant for me was they were often my age, and I was watching you know their life sort of run out. And uh, I would often wonder what my role was. Uh, partly it was to witness. Mm-hmm. Partly it was to do the time-honored thing that I think physicians do. And you actually use the word that I like, which is presence, Mm -hmm. Uh, simply being present. I mean, I remember one time uh, in the HIV era, before there was any treatment, one of my patients canceled coming to clinic, and his mother called to say he was too weak to come. And it just didn't sit well with me that I might not see him if I didn't do something. So actually... At the end of my day, I went to his trailer out in the country, and I went for my own needs, so to speak, to sort of get some closure, if you like. And I was uh, amazed by how much my visit made a difference, made a profound impact on the family, helped them to come to terms with what was coming, what was inevitable, gave him some comfort, some peace. And I remember walking out of the house after washing my hands and thinking, this is what the country doctor of, you know, 100, 150 years ago did so well. They had none of the cures that we now have, but by their presence they could heal 
even when they couldn't cure. It was a very powerful lesson. This is not, or is it, something that you learned in medical school? No, I don't think this is anything you learn. <laughs> I mean, I take that back. I think sometimes if you're lucky, uh, you see physicians who train you impart something by the way they conduct themselves. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure we're picking up some of those things. As a medical student, I never had coaching in, you know, how to break bad news or, you know, um, uh, I, I wish I had in some ways, but um, I had the benefit of watching wonderful, compassionate physicians model the behavior that I, that I wanted to emulate, or in some cases, modeling a behavior that I knew I never wanted to emulate. Mm-hmm. So, so you learn from all those things. You know, I ask that because there, most physicians who do the kind of work you do will encounter people who are facing the end of their lives and want some indication that there is understanding on the part of the physician that this is frightening and and, and transformational, right? And yes. I think that rarely, that happens less than it should. Maybe I should say that. Why? Well, I'm not, first of all, I'm not sure that it happens less than it should. I, I, I'm often gratified to see extraordinary acts by colleagues that I work mm-hmm. with and people that I learn about. So I think it's the, you know, the acts where people were not very kind that get magnified and, and reported. But wow. um, certainly in my life I've been impressed by... I mean, there is the pressure of time. There is the pressure of you know, many things to do. But I've been impressed by when it counts... Most physicians, I'm taking up for them as you can tell, but I believe this. Most physicians fall back on some early version of themselves that reminds themselves why they're in this business, and they stop and they do the right thing. That's what I'd like to think. So we've talked a little bit about um, the spiritual idea of redemption or whatever we're calling it tonight. but you've been quick to say that that was not something that was uppermost in your mind as you conceived of the novel. But I'm curious about why not. Because there are, there are characters who pray, and there's, an, I think, an a overriding sense of a presence of a higher power and how much comfort some of these characters take in that. Yeah, I feel guilty to confess this, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> when, I, when I begin a novel, my, my goal is very simply a good story well told. You know, and I think um, I have this thesis that the story is a collaborative venture between the writer and the reader. Mm-hmm. The writer provides the words, the readers provide their imagination, and somewhere in middle space, this beautiful movie version happens that is unique to each reader. Yes. And so I get theses sent to me by graduate students about one aspect of my work or other, really? you know, about all the symbolism and the archetypes and and I often think, I love wow, that. if only I was that clever, you know. <laughs> I mean, this is this is not to say they are wrong. They're absolutely right because that's what they saw. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that I was trying to create characters and as I kept revising and revising, they became so, so real to me and they, become, they became manifest in particular ways 
And since I was writing about this period of 1900 to 1970, and in many ways modeling the extraordinary heroic grandmothers I had on both sides who, who had weathered all kinds of difficulties, I suppose it's inevitable that it came out with these themes, but I didn't really set out to do that. I just, good story, well told. Oh, That's <laughs> come on. You're being way too modest, I think. Uh, so when you get these graduate student theses, what do you do with those? Well, I, you, know, <laughs> you know, I just had, had one that came to my attention where someone has done this big exegesis on the statue of Bernini in my previous book, um, wow. you know, Mother Teresa's, uh, St. Teresa's Ecstasy, and uh, all the ways that I had invoked this. And, <laughs> you know, they're not wrong. This is how they saw it. And, you know, it, it's kind of like art historians talking about a painting. And sometimes I look at them and think, wow, you're just making all that up because that's not what I see there. You know? But it's not wrong. It's, it's how they see the world. Isn't I reply it, politely and thank them is what I do. Isn't it possible you are more brilliant than even you know? And all of this is getting into the work. <laughs> well, I, th- I think people project on me a lot more, you know, cleverness than I actually possess. But, but I want to say that I think writing is utterly mysterious, that, you know, you, you sit down and you have in mind to do something, and, you know, there are moments, not, not every day certainly, not even every week sometimes, there are moments when suddenly something kicks in, the right brain, the muse, and... You know, those moments are precious. They're the things that I will remember the most about this book is those little moments that I don't know where they came from and how that happened. And uh, so, you know, I'm not sure that I always understand why I'm putting certain things down, but they feel correct. And the subconscious mind is complicated. So blame it on the subconscious. Then. Okay. I, I just I have to say, though, that I, I think this novel is infused with the idea of mercy and I love that because I think of mercy as in some ways you get grace whether you deserve it or not and this that is what just really spoke to me in the novel does that make any sense no actually it does and and I must say that um, some of the more critical parts of the novel were being written during COVID and uh, I came of age with HIV as a physician, as an infectious disease specialist. And during COVID, although I was on the wards, I had much more of a backseat compared to the frontline emergency medicine physicians, critical care folks. And, uh, but but the, 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 the mood of that intense COVID experience, uh, I think, affected me greatly and allowed me to sort of reflect back on the HIV era as well and to think about things like mercy and compassion and about, you know, the the, the need for redemption. So I can't quite say how it affected me, but I think it certainly infused this novel with a, a great sense of the, the poignancy of life. You know, life mm-hmm. is a terminal condition. I don't know if that's news to you, but you know, that is the first line of the world according to Garp, or maybe it's the last <laughs> line. But it's very true. I think we sometimes in our day-to-day interactions, we, um, we forget how quickly... This can wither and fade, this dream we're living right now. It sounds like you emerged from your experience uh, as a physician during COVID, during the pandemic, as in somehow changed. Changed as a doctor or changed as a writer or, or both? What would you say? 
Um, I think it just changed me. Just the the witness, the witnessing what we all did, was deeply, deeply moving. And perhaps it indicated that prior to that we had been in a slightly complacent mode. You know, this sort of thing can't happen. Although, as an infectious disease person, we'd been worrying about you know avian influenza and things like this for a long time. But when it actually happened, it just felt you know very, very meaningful, and um, there was an urgency. To, to really get at what matters, what matters most, and let's get right to it. And so I, I felt that sort of infusing uh, my writing, infusing my act of sitting down in the chair, infusing my you know, dogged willingness to keep revising, revising, to get it right, you know? Right. Um, you said that uh, you did these series of interviews with Oprah for her book club, and there were, what, six podcasts produced yes. out of it? But one of the things that she told you was to listen to what people are telling you about the book. Yeah. And I have a feeling she told you that because you were saying to her what you're saying to me, which yes, is, indeed. <laughs> it's magic, and I don't know, and it happened, and it's yeah. wonderful, and it's subconscious. But I, I, what do you think she meant? And then we can talk a little bit about that. You know, she was full of sage advice, but, um, you know, I think she was, she was sort of trying to help me articulate what it is that I seem to have accomplished. And again, I'm, this is not false modesty. Believe me, I, I'm really proud of the story. I'm really proud of the way it all shaped out. But if, if the reader thinks that I knew on page one the day I picked up a pen exactly where it was going, no, no way. I, I you know, stumbled my way here and there, are thousands of pages in the wrong direction, I think what she was getting at was helping me identify this uh, sort of emotional reaction that I see yeah. to the book. Uh, I, I think that it has to do, this is my summary of many different conversations with readers, with individuals. The book is really about heroic women whose hero- heroism is, is quiet. The mm-hmm. world would never know of them. And yet in their ability to go on in their you know, perseverance despite great tragedy, in their faith, you know, in their dogged you know, willingness to keep going, to love, to not become cynical, to, to forgive. They are absolute you know, uh, heroes. And I think that's a very attractive thing to the reader. I think it must have been very attractive to me to develop these characters like Big Amici, who I, you know, I just adore, uh, because I think I was celebrating what I witnessed and you know loved most about some of the strong women I've seen in my life. These women are, um, as as you know, determined, wounded. I think merciful, compassionate. You know what else? They're not certain that they are on the right path or that they've made the right decision. I mean, they are in some ways blundering like we are. I mean, that, that, I think that reads as so real and, and genuine and necessary for a time like this. I love that idea that while there is a certain quiet um, resilience they're not positive that they've made the right choices in life. You notice I'm listening very carefully because 
I love what you, <laughs> you just said. You are following Oprah's <laughs> advice. No, I think you're right. Um, and I, ident- I identify with characters like that. You know, I think I identify with, with the doubt. I identify yeah. with the, you know, the diffidence. I identify with, you know, the sense, well, I took this path, but, you know, what did I leave behind? Right. And uh, I think that's, you know, maybe it's my character that I'm not, you know, I'm around people often at Stanford who are, Legends in their own minds, as you, if, you, if you like. <laughs> ah, do tell. And I often walk into a room with the expectation that someone's going to be on to me and I'm going to be kicked out of here. There's no basis for either of those things. But um, I think as a result, I identify with characters who have doubts, who are engaged, mm-hmm. who are agonizing over the things that I like to think that all of us agonize about to some degree. You know, I'm curious about whether there is a tension in your identification with that and your role as a physician, not to say that you go into every interaction with certainty, but there is a sense of if something is seriously wrong, we want our physicians to give us some kind of, we do want a sense of certainty. And so here you are identifying with a lot of doubt, and yet I'm sure in your day-to-day life as a physician, you project a certain amount of knowledge and certainty. Well, I'm not sure about certainty because uh, actually I think it's rare that things are absolutely clear-cut. You know, and I try to articulate to the patient what the nuances are, and sometimes that's very challenging. I mean, look at our whole struggle with you know, COVID, vaccination. Right. It was a miscommunication on our part, I think. I think there was too much trying to preach down and too many, you know, early mistakes that couldn't be sort of undone. So, no, I, don't, I think medicine is far from precise. I mean, there are times when we get close. Uh, but what I do try to convey is that, you know, we're in this together, that this is a partnership, that uh, if I'm your attending physician, I'm going to be with you on this journey, you know, through our lack of knowledge to the point where we have enough knowledge to move this forward, get you better, hopefully. You know, it's never certain, far from it. You're a guide in some ways, right? I'm a what? You're a guide. Oh, no, no. I, I think no, not as a, not as a physician no, to somebody no, who's no. saying, we're going to be on a path together through this. Um, I'm fulfilling a very basic human need. I think that when we're ill, no matter how educated and sophisticated we are, there is a part of us in illness that, that sort of becomes almost childlike. Yeah. And once someone, uh, and the subtext of what we're saying is, Daddy, Mommy, please help me, tell me it's, it'll be all right. right. Now, obviously, I can't say it's going to be all right if it's not going to be all right, but I can say, I will be with you on this journey. We will come through this. And I can make a lot of effort to get to know them. Uh, William Osler, the granddaddy of American medicine, said something profound. He said, it doesn't really matter what disease this patient has. It matters what patient has the disease. Wow. You know, so talking about, you know, accuracy and concreteness, I mean, the same disease in two different people and the way they handle it makes all the difference. And I think our job is to sort of try to, try to understand that. Uh, my model in many ways is uh, William Carlos Williams, who mm. was a you know, a poet before he became a physician and, you know, felt that he should be in the river of life to write poetry and 
At the age of 75, he wrote that he was giving up his evening clinics. But uh, when Robert Coles, as a student, was rounding with him in this rural practice in Patterson, New Jersey, he said to him, he said, you know, with all your knowledge about, you know, science and this and that, when I'm dealing with a sick person, I'm not dealing with a liver or a lung or a heart. I'm dealing with one guy or gal in distress. And the physician must fall back on his or her sense of self. Wow. So, not quite godlike, but one must be, and I think as I get older I'm more conscious, that there is a sort of interaction, there's something I'm projecting, to the degree I can get it to work in our favor, I will certainly do that. It, it helps to be gray, it helps to have no hair, it helps to be clearly older than the residents and interns <laughs> with me. And I, I'm not averse to using that. Uh, Wow. In a positive way. Yes. You know, as you're describing that, I'm thinking your doctors in this novel just exemplify. Again, I'm afraid you're going to say, not I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't know I was doing it. But they do. They exemplify that beautiful description you've just given. They are in the river of life. And it is not just a disease. I think, I think one of the characters actually says something like that, about treating leprosy. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wonderful to read these characters and to understand more of the way your medical mind works and then to, to be able to take that in, out into a world that, again, I'm going to say I think, you know, um, the medical industrial complex is scary. It is scary. I will think of this. Yeah. It is scary. And, you know, I, I think many of us in medicine... Uh, I wonder how many physicians are here, but many of us in medicine are distressed because we we let go of the reins and we allowed sort of corporate entities to increasingly chop into our time, you know, make us enter things in the computer that are really not the best use of our time. We're the most highly paid clerical workers in the world, you know. Is that how this feels? Yes, I mean, so this this this, age of medicine. There's a lot. There's a lot that's um, wrong with medicine, and you know, there's a lot of frustration. But I think uh, a lot of my role when I speak to, in large forums, mm-hmm. to my fellow physicians is just to remind them of why we came here, remind them of the calling, you know, remind them of who they were when they were trying to get into medical school. And that's not invalid, you know, it's hard, it's challenging, but I'm really an optimist. I, I really think that the pendulum will swing back. Uh, by God, it's gone a long way this way. Yeah. You know, almost uh, 25% of our GDP or some ridiculous figure than that, like that. But we have to figure out reimbursement. We have to figure out a lot of things. We have to be able to care for people, you know, not be in the healthcare business, but in the business of caring for people. Which Hippocratic oath did you take? The original one or the more contemporary one? I think probably the, the original one. What, yeah. what do you think of it? Oh, I thought it was incredibly romantic. You know, Did it, you? Uh, in fact, uh, the title for my last novel, Cutting for Stone, I don't know if you know this, came from a line in the Hippocratic Oath. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a line in the Hippocratic Oath, which was very strange for us to be uttering, which said, I will not cut for stone, but leave it for those who are trained in it, or something like that. 
But you know, it dates back to the medieval times, I guess to Hippocrates. We don't even know that Hippocrates actually wrote this oath, but, um, but that line dates back to the time when bladder stones were epidemic. I mean, everybody had bladder stones. You know, some of them would be the size of a golf ball, probably from contaminated water. Mm-hmm. I believe Samuel Johnson carried a catheter in his hat and would have to catheterize himself several times a day. Oh I mean, this is why life ended prematurely so often. And um, there were these itinerant people who went from town to town who were very skilled in a tradition passed down in the family to be able to cut for stone and take it out. Wow. You know? And typically they would um, make an incision about you know, uh, an inch in front of the anus in the prostatic urethra. This is more information than you want. Oh, no. But they Do would, go on. I mean, they would do something very skilled and get the stone out and promptly leave town because... <laughs> I would guess many, very often the people would die of sepsis, but God forbid anybody who tried it who had never done it before knew exactly what they were doing. So, you wow. know, a line like that, what, what did it mean to me as yeah. a young student except it stuck with me and many years later that became the title for my novel, Cutting for Stone. Wow, I <laughs> didn't know that as long as I've loved that book. Um, there are... Since you've given us this specific description of how to do that surgery, I think I'm ready. <laughs> I think I could do it, should I need to. Uh, there, are, there are a number of scenes in here which are quite specific. I noted that the New York Times noted that as well. Who cares what they say? Just let me say that again. But, um, but you, there's a purpose, isn't there, to, to writing through these surgeries and the kind of specific detail that you do. I wonder what the purpose is. Yeah, I think it's, um, you know, as a reader, I enjoy books that are sort of procedurals, you know, whether I'm reading, I don't know, Tom Clancy about submarines or Patrick O'Brien about, you know, sailing ships in the era of uh, of the Napoleonic era. Even if I don't understand, you know, leeward versus windward and top gallon mast, whatever, you know, I think you're the sense that you're immersed in something, you know, very specific and technical is rewarding for most of us. That's why we read police procedurals and spy procedurals. And I think um, the challenge with medicine, medicine is inherently interesting. It's about our own bodies. Yes. Uh, but the challenges in this era of uh, YouTube and so on, there's very little that the reader hasn't seen or cannot see. So you're not really bringing them into a world that's, you know, invisible to them. But what they're missing is the, is the sort of, uh, you know, the sort of the meta-understanding, the, the context. And so you can do descriptions of this sort because they're different from just seeing it on, 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 on screen. You're explaining something, you're adding sort of a rationale to it, and you could go overboard. And so that's where a great editor says, okay, this is... <laughs> Too much blood, you know. <laughs> less is more on yeah, the less is more, yeah. on the blood flow, that kind of thing. Exactly, yeah. Huh. But it's in the, you know things like childbirth. Uh, as a student, I thought it was the most dramatic thing I'd ever seen. Do you remember your first childbirth? Oh yes, vividly. Yeah. What was it like? It was you know um, it was in Madras and um, in a hospital that was you know having so many deliveries that the Postgraduates didn't bother with normal deliveries, and the medical students got to handle all the normal deliveries. And wow. 
But it was happening so fast and I remember being, you know, just feeling completely lost and the nurses were so, you know, competent, so thorough, so so uh, efficient and they sort of taught us everything we needed to know. And um, it was phenomenal. I, I just read a memoir um, by a, sur- a trauma surgeon who writes about what those first immersive days are like when somebody's doing the surgery, but then you're doing the surgery, as in get in here and help us mm-hmm. with this. I wonder if you remember experiences yeah, you know, like that. I'm not a surgeon, I should say. Right. I mean, many people assume that I'm a surgeon. And uh, when I was a medical student, I, I loved surgery. I actually thought I was going to become a surgeon. Oh, you did. And I came to America, and uh, fortunately, I loved everything. But I came to America, and uh, um, the surgical residencies were like pyramidal programs. They took 15 people, but only two might make it to the chief resident at five years. And foreign graduates like me were famous for being spit out into, you know, psychiatry, or not, not to demean psychiatry, I'm just, I mean, but they, this isn't what they wanted to do. And I didn't want to take that chance of, you know, spending three years doing surgery and then having to scramble and do something else. And I loved internal medicine, but uh, a part of me was always slightly sad about turning my back on the inherent great drama of surgery. Surgery is dramatic, you know, it is interesting, and uh, my surgical friends who are legion have, you know, humored me and, you know, allowed me to scrub with them and allowed me to sort of see how they think and, you know, peek in on their thought processes, their actions. And uh, I've just found it much more interesting to write about that uh, than something very cognitive in medicine, for example. Although I do both in this book. I was going to say, but infectious disease is dramatic too. Oh, very, very much that? so, very much so. But it's not quite got that knife in your hand <laughs> millimeters As from the order. physicians do in the book. Um, I, I, I want to ask you about listening for stories before we hear the, the first excerpt because um, you do that in your work as a physician. But I also know that you, you do that in your meeting you know, those meetings with readers and in your everyday life, and then somehow that gets translated into your writing work. I want to know a little bit about how you, how that idea of that discipline of listening for a story works in all your different dimensions. Well, I think listening is uh, sort of fundamental to medicine. I mean, we take a history and then we do a physical. And the history has the word story embedded in it, you know. Right. And these days, um, you know, as, a, as an attending physician, if I ever bring something to the bedside in terms of a diagnosis that has escaped my brilliant residents and juniors, it's usually because some element of the story resonates with my, you know, my, my filing cabinet of stories in my head and some echo there makes me probe a little bit deeper. It's rare that I have some knowledge that's, that they don't have. Uh, so it's these nuances of story, or maybe it's sometimes just the recognition that the, the patient needs to tell you the story. You know, there are times when the patient walks in and you already have the diagnosis. But it would be almost rude to say, don't say anything to me, I know what you got, just sit there. You know. <laughs> they have a need to tell you the story. And... Uh, 
I think you have to listen to it. Similarly, I think it's, you know, I, I teach people to examine the body, a skill that's dying, because I think it's important that we examine with skill and also that we localize the disease, or whatever they're complaining of, we localize it on their body, not on an image in a room far away or a biopsy report or a lab report, that we allow them to sort of localize this thing that's brought them to you on their self. And there's something very important about the the business of examining the body, which is also a kind of listening. The body is a text, and I love the skill of being able to read it. That's a beautiful way to put it. But you... You did that as well in the novel. I mean, that idea of unspooling the story, and maybe there are some wrong conclusions, or people assume that they understand, not just in the physician interactions, but also in some of the decisions that the characters are making. And it feels so... It takes the time it needs to, and there's a wonderful flow to this. Thank you. Thank does, you. That, does that make sense? Well, I am actually going to take credit for that. <laughs> Good, yay! <laughs> in the sense that um, I think one of the nice things about training in internal medicine and, is that you are taught this art of taking disparate clues mm-hmm. and trying to bring them together to apply Occam's razor, make one explanation for you know, a smattering of things And I've always felt that, you know, it's analogous to the novel. You know, you've got these little, all these balls you throw in the air, and there's a moment in the writing for me, I wish I knew it ahead of time, when you suddenly see where they're all going to land and how they connect. Really? And, um, you know, that's the goal. That's why I do this, I suppose, for that moment when it all comes together. When I actually see the ending, which is sometimes years into the book, and then now I can go back and concentrate on the writing. I'm not trying to discover where the hell is this going, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I know where it's going, which is... I think it's a feeling akin to making a difficult diagnosis. You, you said you have this sense that I have, I've purposefully thrown balls into the air. This is something that I want to write about. This is going to be integral to the story somehow. Yeah. I mean, at what point then do you get some kind of clarity and what this is a question my editors asked me at what point you (laughs) (laughs) where's the clarity i know you know i think uh, i envy writers who know the whole story you know know the first line the last line everything that's going to happen and even they admit that in the writing things change but um, i tend to begin with a mood with a you know something that has stuck in my head, a 12-year-old mm-hmm. bride or a nun giving birth to twins. I mean, and, you know, once I have that mood and that image, I just keep pushing it forward and other people sort of start to come alive and some of them don't survive mm-hmm. uh, the editing process and others become much stronger than you realize and suddenly you have a little connection and then you keep pushing and now you have even more connections and uh, it's a very satisfying and gratifying, but a terribly inefficient way to write. (laughs) I took, uh, this is 14 years since my last book, and almost 11 years of writing this, and I mean, I recognize I better increase the pace if I want to. (laughs) (laughs) We want more of you. I want to ask you how you 
grab on to that mood and whether it feels ephemeral sometimes. Yes, I, that's a nice way of putting it. It does feel like I'm trying to grab on something that's, the, you know, the edges of a dream that's quickly vanishing. Right. And, uh, you know, you're, you're just trying to push it forward. And those are some of the moments when I really feel the muse, the right brain, God, who knows, you know, something kicks in and uh, you don't quite know why certain things are unfolding, but you are smart enough to recognize that some of them are fruitful and then you try and push them forward, push them forward. And uh, mm-hmm. it's not a very efficient way of writing, but I must say this sounds strange to most readers, but I was never in a hurry because I love my day job. You know, I didn't have to have this tomorrow. So I could really take my time to try and re-enter that dream fragment and keep pushing it forward and see where does the dream go today. And, you know? Uh, oh, that's, that's wonderful. That's exactly how the novel feels. I mean, that, that's why I feel like your novels change me in some ways as a reader. They, there is no headlong kind of rush to discover the next thing. I am firmly in your world and even when I put it down and pick it up again, you have this way of being, of enveloping the reader, I think. And it, it's a great way to put it in, those, in that dream fragment. And I feel like I can capture that again, too. For as many times as I have to break away and live my life, it shimmers there, and I can, I can grab that again. And hold on to that. That's wonderful. I must say, as a physician who's very conscious of time and, you know, our mortality, yes. the only instrument that I know that stops time is a novel. You know, the ability to pick up a book and suddenly, you know, three generations pass and, you know, lifetimes and you finally put it down and it's Tuesday. <laughs> you know, and, and oh, I love that. That's the quality I like in books and that's the quality I aspire to when I write and so when you just said that it just gave me goosebumps because that's exactly what I wanted to try and emulate oh wow it's so great to have you here I'm so glad you're here Um, all right shall we read the first excerpt certainly if you are okay and this is we should say at the very beginning of the novel Yes, this is actually the very first page. Okay. Um, I should, may I just say yes, to them please. that uh, yes. I, I, recorded, I auditioned to record the audio book. Um, and <laughs> you I, had to I, audition I that, for real? I, I mean, I'm not kidding because I think it's a red flag when authors record their own work because, you know, what do we know about performing a book? But I didn't want to see the, all these ethnic terms mangled by somebody, you know? So I learned a lot, and I, they picked me, and I got to do it. So if this sounds a bit over the top in, in the delivery, that's the excuse. <laughs> <laughs> we'll love it. Chapter 1, Always, 1900, Travancore, South India. She is 12 years old, and she will be married in the morning. Mother and daughter lie on the mat their wet cheeks glued together. The saddest day of a girl's life is the day of her wedding, her mother says. After that, God willing, it gets better. (laughs) 
Soon she hears her mother's sniffles change to steady breathing, then to the softest of snores, which in the girl's mind seem to impose order on the scattered sounds of the night, from the wooden walls exhaling the day's heat to the scuffing sound of the dog in the sandy courtyard outside. A brain fever bird calls out, Gerekada, Gerekada, which way is east, which way is east? She imagines the bird looking down at the clearing where the rectangular patched roof squats over the house. It sees the lagoon in front and the creek and the paddy field behind. The bird's cry can go on for hours, depriving them of sleep. But just then, it is cut off abruptly, as though a cobra has snuck up on it. In the silence that follows, the creek sings no lullaby, only grumbling over the polished pebbles. She awakes before dawn while her mother still sleeps. Through the window, the water in the paddy field shimmers like beaten silver. On the front veranda, her father's ornate charu casera or lounging chair sits forlorn and empty. She lifts the writing palette that straddles the long wooden arms and she seats herself. She feels her father's ghostly impression preserved on the cane weave. On the banks of the lagoon, four coconut trees grow sideways, skimming the water as if to preen at their reflections before straightening to the heavens. Goodbye, lagoon. Goodbye, creek. Mole, her father's only brother, had said the previous day to her surprise. Of late, he wasn't in the habit of using the endearment Mole or daughter with her. Mole. We found a good match for you. His tone was oily, as though she were four, not twelve. Your groom values the fact that you're from a good family, a priest's daughter. She knew her uncle had been looking to get her married, get her married off for a while. But she still felt he was rushing to arrange this match. What could she say? Such matters were decided by adults. The helplessness on her mother's face embarrassed her. Later, when they were alone, her mother said, Mole, this is no longer our house. Your uncle. She was pleading as if her daughter had protested. Her words had trailed off, her eyes darting around nervously. The lizards on the walls carried tails. How different from here can life be there? You'll still feast at Christmas, fast for Lent, church on Sundays, the same Eucharist, the same coconut palms and coffee bushes. It's a fine match. He's of good means. Why would a man of good means marry a girl of little means? A girl without a dowry? What are they keeping secret from her? What does he lack? Youth, for one, he's 40. He already has a child. A few days after the marriage broker had come and gone, she overheard her uncle chastise her mother, saying, So what if his aunt drowned? Is that the same as a family history of lunacy? Whoever heard of a family with drownings? Others are always jealous of a good match, and they'll find one thing to exaggerate. 
Seated in her father's, cha- her father's chair, she strokes the polished arms and thinks for a moment of her father's forearms. Like most Malayali men, he'd been a lovable bear. Hair on arms, chest, and even his back. So one never touched skin except through soft fur. On his lap, in this chair, she learned her letters. When she did well in the church school, he said, You have a good head, but being curious is even more important. High school for you, college too, why not? I won't let you marry young like your mother. The bishop had posted her father to a troubled church near Mundakayam that had had no steady priest before that. It wasn't a place for family with morning mist still nibbling at the knees at midday and rising to the chin by evening and where dampness brought on wheezing, rheumatism, and fevers. Less than a year into his posting, he returned with teeth-chattering chills, his skin hot to the touch, his urine running black. Before they could get help, his chest stopped moving. When her mother held a mirror to his lips, it didn't mist. Her father's breath was now just air. That was the saddest day of her life. How could marriage be worse?
Beautiful. Oh my gosh. Beautiful. You have a microphone, right? Wow. Nirmala Raja Sekar, tell me a little bit about that music, that song. Absolutely. Thank you. Beautiful book. Very inspiring. So when I read this, I felt today we should present something, the music of that region. And this music is called Nasrani, folk music of Kerala. And Nasrani is the Arabic word for Christian, referring to the Christians of St. Thomas the Apostle. So this music is something I learned just a couple days ago. So that... Oh my gosh. What? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Thank you, sir. So that we could make this presentation more meaningful and relevant to what is happening here in the book and the story. It was fantastic. Just before you you go, just tell us a little bit about the instruments that you're using. Absolutely, Kerry. I'm playing the Saraswati Veena, the national instrument of India. And yes, India has a national instrument. And this is a seven-stringed instrument from the South Indian tradition of Carnatic music, the setting of Kerala, Tamil Nadu, and all the southern states of India. This instrument and the music is 2,000 years old. Wow. And oh my gosh. accompanying me on the Mridangam, which is also 2,000 years old, is Mr. Bhupati, one of India's premier percussion artists, who happens to be in town today. Oh, wow. Oh, we are so lucky. Thank you. Wow. You're listening to Talking Volumes at the Fitzgerald Theatre. Dr. Abraham Verghese is here with his new novel, The Covenant of Water. And I'm Carrie Miller. What does that music mean to you? Well, it was very nostalgic. It was really, it? you know, it took me back to my medical school days in, in Madras and, uh, you know, a very South Indian in flavor and sound. So thank you, Nirmalan Tanjavur. Thank you so much. It's just. Uh, I didn't know this was going to happen. It's been deeply meaningful. I'm glad. I'm so glad. Uh, Tell me about these strong and formidable women in your family that these characters are based on. Yeah, I think I was influenced by both my maternal grandmothers. Uh, They were both married quite young. Uh, It's a daring thing to begin a novel with a 12-year-old bride. yes. But um, I think what people don't quite get is that very often, in the case of my grandmothers, they were marrying 11- and 12-year-old boys, essentially. And this was just a ceremony, and they immediately came and became children in this new household, oftentimes renouncing their family forever, in a sense, Mm -hmm. because only the sons had the privilege. And they became very close to their mother-in-laws, who became more like mothers to them. They, They knew them longer. And, uh, you know, I, I, on this book tour, I met an aunt who pointed out someone in an album and said, you know, she was married very young, and she went to her mother-in-law, who she loved, and said, that annoying boy there, can we get rid of him? The one <laughs> sitting with all the other boys? <laughs> that was her husband. You know? <laughs> so clearly at some point under the parents' supervision, that changes. But my grandmothers, both married very young, arrived in this new household, and that was where they also died, you know, many mm-hmm. years later. Both of them suffered the loss of a child, 
Wow. One from rabies, one from typhoid fever. Oh. They were enormously devout, uh, and and they, you know, had a huge influence on their family, the community, but the world would never know about them. So I think in many ways I was, you know, paying tribute to these remarkable, loving women. Women. Do you do you think your grandmothers? So they were eleven or twelve when they were married. Yeah, I think they were. That, that age, that was typical. But again, it was the ceremony alliance with this family. But, you know, a man who has daughters, the, the pressure is to get your daughters married off. The property in those days entirely went to the son, you know, sons. Patently unfair, but that's how it was. And so getting your daughter married off mm. was a priority before you died yourself, mm. you know. Yeah. It's extraordinary to think... Um, you enter a household and a woman that you've never known, your mother-in-law, becomes your de facto mother. And she will influence who you are probably as much as your own mother did. More, even more. I mean, and I think the, um, you know, the trope of mother-in-law's being the evil figure. I was going to crack a joke about my mother-in-law, but I won't. Yeah. It was, I mean, in my mother's experience, in, in both my grandmother's experience, they worshipped their mother-in-laws. You know, oh. These were the women who welcomed them as daughters to the house that would be their house, you know. And uh, after their time, it would be their house. And it was almost as though the pots, the kitchen walls were infused with that love that they handed mm-hmm. down. You know, a lot of which I tried to capture mm-hmm. in that book, that sense of generational knowledge being passed on, you know, being embedded in the, in the geography and the furniture and the furnishings, you know. Do you have the sense that those were happy marriages in the contemporary way, I guess, that we think of a, as a happy marriage? Or doesn't that really even apply? Well, I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's sort of a semantic definition of what do we call a happy marriage. I think what's profound when I look at my parents and grandparents is you know the level of commitment you know there's a there's a commitment that i think trumps most everything else and then you know in the ups and downs you suddenly look back and you've had 40 50 years together and you're proud of what you've accomplished and i think sometimes you know in our haste we don't we don't have the patience or the forgiveness to get that far so i don't know if it's better or not i mean i'm not advocating anything but i think um it's striking how many of them turned out to be I know. pretty good matches? You're not here to advocate for arranged marriages tonight? <laughs> no, not really. No. I mean, I think people should do what's, what they're comfortable with. I mean, I have nieces, uh, cousins who, you know, very Western educated, but they wanted their parents to pick someone like dad, is what my cousin sister really? said. You know, I want to marry somebody like dad. And so they... They did, you know, and I think the arranged marriage system uh, picks someone who, first of all, shares your upbringing, which is pretty huge, shares the same, you know, community, the same rituals. So there's a lot of things that's, that's given. You've been brought up similarly, and uh, then they're carefully vetted, their reputation is sought out, and, and if they're committed, often religiously committed to this institution of marriage, then that commitment is going to make this work, you know. It's like the weight of the family's expectations on you, too. And it's not always perfect. I mean, there are many divorces, and there's, you know, 
obviously things have changed a great deal. So I, I'm not advocating one way or the other, just so I'm clear about this, okay? You should do what your heart tells you. <laughs> you don't want the headline, no. Abraham Verghese says, arranged marriages are the way to go yeah. <laughs> from here. Mm-hmm. Um, so your grandmother, is it your maternal grandmother then who wrote this journal? No, for your the person nation? who wrote the journal yes. was another heroic figure, and that was my mother. Your mom. Okay. So my mother, um, you know, got her college degree around 1940s in India, just as the British were leaving after centuries of occupation. And she, uh, there were no jobs to be had. And she saw this ad for a teaching position in Ethiopia. She had to look up on the map where Ethiopia was. I mean, can you imagine carrying a single woman in a sari in the 1940s sailing or however <laughs> she went to Aden and then to Ethiopia? Oh and and my father was hired the same way at the same time from the same community because huh. Ethiopia being an old Christian country was looking for teachers of that background and they met and married there and you know she taught there for many years then came to America before I did before any of us did with my father and they taught in New Jersey she taught junior high in Springfield New Jersey in Asari won all kinds of wow. teaching awards beloved yeah and then in her 70s, when she was retired in Florida, my niece, who was five, said to her, Amachi, what was it like when you were a five-year-old girl? And my mother was just taken aback by that question. How does she communicate you know, how different her life was to a child born here? You know, and there was no running water or electricity, but it wasn't a deprivation. We would visit every summer, and you know, by dusk, the whole house would be lit with beautiful lamps, and in the morning, we'd help to draw water from the well and fill all the reservoirs. And, but how do you convey all this? So my mother began, who was a heroic figure, but in a different fashion than the two grandmothers, my mother began to write in a school notebook in her very elegant hand. And she was a great artist, so she illustrated this. And so it was 120 pages of anecdotes of her childhood. And when I saw that document, which has become a treasure in our family, it just struck me that you know this was the geography where I would want to set the next novel. I think geography is as important as character. In many ways, if you pick the right geography it, and the right time period, it sort of does a lot of the work for you about making your characters evolve in a certain way that you might not know about. But you've given them these conditions, and now they can sprout. Where does that notebook reside right now? The original is with my younger brother, but we all have copies. And uh, yeah, it's a treasured thing. And my, my mother lived long enough to hear me tell her in her 90s by now, living in Palo Alto, very close to me, that I was going to set a novel in Carol. And she was so excited, became my number one assistant. And, uh, you know, till a month before she died, she would call me up with an exciting anecdote that she just recalled from way back in her memory. And I never had the heart to tell her that I'd heard the same anecdote yesterday. <laughs> but, uh, so she didn't live to see the, the novel, but um, you know, I, I feel that in many ways, talking about the ephemeral and, and the, things, uh, un, you know, the things unmeasured, I feel like my mother has had a lot to do with the success of this novel. And I actually expressed this to my dad, who's 97 and gets on a treadmill twice a day for oh 30 minutes. Oh my gosh but wow. very, very slowly. Okay? <laughs> so I said to my dad something like, 
I think mom's watching over this book, you know, that's why it's doing well. He said, yes, she is. You know, he was angry with me that I would As even... As if there'd be a yeah, question. It's, it's like obvious, right? you know. <laughs> why was I even speculating on this? <laughs> right. And that's the nature of their faith, by the way, both my mom and dad, but especially the, my grandparents. It was rock solid, and I was envious. You know, I, my brother and I, you know, struggled to feel what they felt. And uh, You mean in faith? Well, in faith, partly because we were dragged into these services every Sunday. They were three hours long in Syriac, a language that they didn't understand. Oh, my god! Only the priest knew. But the ritual was important, but to a child it was torture. And I think, you know, <laughs> my brother and I both, my older brother and I both wandered away from this. But uh, interestingly, we found our way back in our own ways. And recently I went to a church in Fremont, California, where the same service is being held. There's enough of a community. And I literally had you know, waves of goosebumps as I heard these very familiar litanies. I still don't understand. Nobody else does. But, <laughs> you know, ritual. Rituals are about transformation. And mm-hmm. somehow that ritual is so terribly important to my parents and my grandparents. It was doing something to me. I don't quite know what, but, you know, it made me not be presumptuous about what all this means. You know, that's a wonderful image, though, to think that this community of people together taking part in this ritual and everything about that spiritual experience is being communicated and it doesn't have to be the words that everybody understands. That it is, it transcends that, I think you're saying. Yeah, yeah. That's very well put. That's exactly it. And as a child, when you would ask, you know, what does this mean? And, you know, the, the answer was often, keep quiet and just sit there. Stand there. And <laughs> two more way, hours to go. Yeah, two hours to go. I think the sense was, whether we understand this or not, this is important that it happen, you know. I don't think they took any pains to explain. I wish they had, you know. So the church in Fremont, interestingly, every other week, the service is in English, a literal oh, English translation, wow. mm-hmm. which is wonderful, and I've attended that too. But, yeah, I, I wonder about about this. I don't have any answers. Lots more questions. I, I have another question about the, the notebook. Does your mother, I mean, is it is it more of a kind of this happened and then this happened and there is not a lot of reflection about what it meant and what it, what it meant to her as a person? Or were, were there some reflections like that. You know, mind you, she was writing to an audience of a five-year-old child, child my niece, who's now, you know, finished college and married and so on. But uh, it was a string of anecdotes, very colorful and vivid. And many of them my brothers and I had heard, except somehow with time they'd become more and more exaggerated, more colorful. (laughs) And uh, But there was one moment in the book where she says... Uh, dear Dea, that's my niece's name, and this is what I remember. I don't really know, you know, how much of this is my memories merging together, but that's how I like to remember. Some, oh, you know, she was doing a little meta-analysis of her own stuff, but even though it was written for a five-year-old, I thought it was actually quite colorful, profound, meaningful mm-hmm. anecdotes that had some instructive value. You know? mm-hmm. Has your father read the book? Oh, yes, yes, very much so. Yeah. And 
My father, as is not uncommon in our our St. Thomas Christian community, is a very strong silent type. You know, I mean, in the sense that I once took my father to meet his older brother, and they hadn't actually seen each other for a long time. They were really very, very fond of each other. And after their initial greeting and hugging, they they just sat next to each other. And uh, they felt no pressure to say anything. Really? I'm sitting there going nuts, thinking... (laughs) You know, let me hear something, you know. <laughs> but um, a lot of things don't need to be said, is my father's sort of modus operandi. And uh, I've come to admire it in, in, a certain way, in a certain way, but he was a great contrast to my mother, who was much more voluble and willing to explain, you know. I wonder if your mother would be surprised and maybe pleased that we've ended up talking m- more about you know, faith and your experience of that than you might expect. My mother Somehow, would be delighted. She'd be delighted. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. Um, how about one last excerpt? Sure. And should we explain where we are in this yeah, I probably should. magnificent novel? So the, uh, the 12-year-old bride that you met at the outset is now a grandmother and her her granddaughter uh, is traveling with her in a bus and they're having a conversation. They're coming back from a religious convention, which is a sort of a comic, comic and profound section in the book where a white preacher who's a replacement for Billy Graham comes and speaks to this large convention. It's a famous convention, but he doesn't speak any Malayalam, obviously. So they have a translator and the translator at some point takes great liberties with what's being said. <laughs> and to the, to, the, um, to the white preacher's surprise, his name is Reverend McGillicuddy, suddenly they're doing this fundraiser on stage for a hospital. So you have to read it to get it. So. But anyway, here's the uh, conversation in the bus between grandmother and granddaughter. And the granddaughter was very affected by every year she sees a lot of lepers, but this year somehow she saw them as, you know, not just objectified as beggars, but she could see the people behind the disease. Amachi, when that woman near us collapsed, I was terrified. I could hardly breathe. I wanted to run, but you, you went right to her. I'm ashamed. Cha! What did I do except lay her down, fan her face? Don't be ashamed. They ride in silence for a while. Big Amici says, I've seen more than my share of suffering and tragedy in my life, Mole. I was always helpless. When your grandfather was sick, I could do nothing. When we pulled Jojo out of the water, if we had a hospital close by, who knows? When baby Mole gets ill, you know how far we go to find a doctor? That's why I got up on the stage, Mariama, and took off my jewelry and put it in the box. Because I don't want us to be helpless or frightened. Doctors know what to do. A hospital can care for the sick. That's why I want a hospital closer to our people. I'm old now, and so that's all I can do. Maybe it was better when I didn't notice the beggars, Mariama says. Now I'll be walking around frightened that 
I might go blind or get fits or lame or collapse like that woman. Listen, she fainted, that's all. It was hot, she may not have drunk enough water. It happens all the time. Your father sees blood and gets faint. I've been alive long enough that I recognize fainting. After a while, her grandmother turns to her. Mariama, sometimes when you are most afraid, when you feel most helpless, that is when God is pointing out a path for you. You mean like wanting a hospital close by? No, I'm talking about you. Your fears. Fear comes from not knowing. If you know what it is you're seeing, if you know what to do, then you won't be afraid. If, her grandmother trails off. You mean like being a doctor? Well, some people may not be cut out for it. It's unnatural for them. I can't tell you what to do. But if I could live my life one more time, that's what I'd want to do. Out of my fear, out of helplessness, in order to be less fearful and to really help, you should pray about it. Only you can know. Begumma, she says. But if that's what God leads you to, I can tell you, your grandmother will be very happy.
you so much. Thank you. We have some time for some questions from the audience. People will be out in the audience with microphones. I hope this is true. Yes, there they are. <laughs> Just realized I didn't even ask anybody about this. Do we have people? Yes, yay, up in the balconies. Okay, so if you'll raise your hand for a question. And I will note that Dr. Verghese is a little hard of hearing, and so I may repeat the question. So if you'll keep the questions kind of con concise. That would be great. Right down there on the main level. Good evening, Dr. Warikis. Um, as a fellow immigrant physician from India, I'm just wondering what was your path from, you know, Tennessee to then you're becoming a writer and alongside your, your medical career? And my other question is just about how much you went back to Travancore or to Kerala during the process of this writing or before to try get, um, you know, get the geography that you talked about. So. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So when I arrived in America, I, I did my residency in Tennessee, went to Boston for my infectious disease fellowship and came back to Tennessee in 1985 uh, to join the faculty. And it was a very curious time. I had lived through you know, the first HIV patients arriving in Boston City Hospital. We didn't have a name for what that was. Mm -hmm. it took a year to find that out. And when I was moving to, um, to, to Tennessee, everyone said that I could expect to see one or two HIV-infected patients every other year. And uh, for the first couple of years, it was true, but then I began to see more patients, more patients. And pretty soon I had 100 patients in a town of 50,000 which was a hundredfold more than most people had predicted. AIDS was thought to be an urban disease. And, and I realized that I had stumbled onto a phenomenon of migration, a paradigm that goes like this. A young man grows up in a small town and leaves for all the reasons you and I leave small towns, jobs, education. But they were leaving because they were gay and didn't want to live that lifestyle under the close scrutiny of their relatives and friends. And so they went to the big city, found themselves, and decades later, the virus found them, and they were now coming back because they were ill. So I wrote a scientific paper describing this phenomenon of migration, and it was uh, widely cited because it was happening in every small town. But I felt that the, the cold, unimaginative sometimes language of science didn't begin to capture the heartache of that journey. It didn't begin to capture the the parents' grief didn't begin to capture my own grief at witnessing people my age going through this again and again. And really, that was the moment that I became a writer and um, went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, uh, uh, gave up my tenured position, my 401k plan. You know, it was a very risky thing. <laughs> and after Iowa, I got a position in El Paso, Texas, because I, medical school there, Texas Tech, El Paso, I thought... What they wanted from me was to teach students, see patients, and, you know, no NIH grants, none of that was needed. Um, you know, I would still do that sort of stuff, but it wasn't a premium on that. My evenings and weekends could be my own, and that's where my first, that book happened, and the second, and 
I always tease my, my students, I say, you know, had I come to Stanford after my residency, just about now I'd be losing my tenure and going to El Paso, Texas. You know? <laughs> because I went there and followed my heart, you know, as opposed to doing the best thing, whatever that was, I followed my heart. That was the lesson HIV patients were teaching you. Don't waste your time, follow your heart. Because of those books, eventually I, you know, was here I am where I am at Stanford. I never sought out that position. It, it all came more organically. So it's a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. It's excellent. Uh, a question right up there on the second level. Hello. As a University of Iowa graduate myself, I saw uh, the shout out to Coralville, Iowa in your book. And I wondered a little bit about your time in Iowa City and how that may have influenced your writing this book. Yeah, thank you for that. I'm actually just here from Iowa City. I drove up this morning. Uh, I was uh, reading at Prairie Lights, which you probably know well. Oh, yeah. yeah Great the, bookstore. The uh, Writer's Workshop in Iowa City was tremendous, I, but not for the reasons you think. The workshop only met once a week. And so the rest of the time was yours gloriously to, to read and to write and find your voice. And I was going there after five years in practice. I knew I'd never have this kind of time again. So I made great use of my time. And so uh, I think I got a lot out of it. And uh, at the end of that period, I needed a job. So that was the end of that little honeymoon of one and a half years. Uh, I love it. And my youngest son is actually a law student there. So... I still have a connection to Iowa City. And Coralville is mentioned in the book. You know, I just love putting in the names of places that are meaningful to me. The reader might, might or might not know the connection. I used to live in Coralville. Thank you for asking. What Was Marilyn Robinson at the Writer's Workshop then? She was. And, you know, I just love her work. Sadly, the year I came, she, uh, I didn't get into her workshop. I was in wow. Frank Conroy's workshop and... Frankly, I don't think I appreciated what a fantastic writer she was till, you know, after mm. Gilead and all these wonderful books kept coming out. So I was envious of people who had her workshop. Yeah. Uh, question right down there. I feel fortunate to have heard the book on Audible in your own voice. And uh, I'm curious, I mean, that added so much to it. I'm wondering if you had to uh, study to do the Scottish accent. <laughs> oh, thank you for that. I mean, as I said, I, I think it's a red flag when authors read their own work, you know. I'm just listening to Tom Lake by Ann Patchett, and it's uh, Meryl Streep doing the, yeah, you know. That's right. So I don't think this is a normal thing, but I really felt that it was so, you know, this was so tricky for most people to do that I had an obligation to try. So I had a lot of fun learning to pitch dialogue so that, you know, when two or three people are talking, you know the woman's voice from the man's voice. Glaswegian accents and Edinburgh accents and upper crust British and every variety of uh, Indian accents, you know, Madras, Kerala. It was a lot of fun and I had great producers and sound studio guys and every now and then we'd stop, get on YouTube and Try to find someone in Scotland saying something similar, <laughs> and then I'd practice. So I'm, Excellent. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. Thank you. A question right over there. 
Dr. Verghese, in the field of medical humanities and narrative medicine, I know that we talk a lot about the healing properties of the act of writing, of, of creating fiction or reflective writing. And I, I sense that there is healing for you in the process of writing. And I'm wondering if you are teaching the medical students with whom you work about those healing properties of writing. So that's a great question. Actually not. You'll be surprised to hear this. I, I actually feel like my writing is very private and uh, I actually don't advocate writing necessarily as a healing method. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not going out saying very much about writing. Uh, in fact, you know, I think that I've always resisted this idea of I wear two hats. I'm a physician, I'm a writer, you know. I know that's disingenuous, but I feel like I'm all physician and I'm looking out at the world, whether in medicine or in writing, with the same lens of a physician. And, um, yeah, I mean, my writing has been healing to me, but nothing has been more healing than medicine has been healing, you know. I think a lot of us go into medicine because we're broken in some way. This is a well-known sort of thesis. And by taking care of others, we fix our brokenness. I don't mean broken in some violent way. I mean, I think, you know, children, adolescents often feel not okay, and you do the hard work and you're willing to enter this profession, it can take care of that not okayness for a while. You know, there is a moment when you will so always have to come back to terms with yourself, back to reconciliation, as we said. <laughs> right. Question right up there on the second level. I'm blown away by this beautiful theater and this audience. Isn't this, this is amazing. wonderful? Yeah. And so many wonderful readers here. Thank you, Dr. Verghese. I was interesting... Where are you? Can you wave so I can see you? Oh, okay. It was interesting to hear you say that the book kind of took you along and you, you followed where it took you. But the condition is apparent at the beginning of the novel. And I'm wondering at what point did you realize that the condition would be a unifying part of the novel. Yeah, thank you for that. I, don't, I'm not, I, I want to make sure that I make this clear. It's not that I'm disengaging from what happened in the book and I have no idea how it happened. <laughs> it, it's more that I'm saying that instead of focusing on abstract things like redemption, religion, I, I was focusing on characters and putting them in situations and I got to know them really well and things happened uh, that way. But uh, early on, I, I recognized that Kerala is this coastal state with 55 rivers coming down from the mountains. You know, it's sandwiched between mountain and coast, 55 rivers coming down a, you know, a, a network, a latticework of, you know, backwaters, canals, lagoons. It's almost like a giant circulatory system with, a mons- with the monsoon being the, uh, the beating heart of this monster. And... Um, as a long-time teacher of medicine, I keep uh, some rare diseases in my back pocket. I mean, not literally, don't worry. <laughs> you know, things that if there's a dull moment on the wards, I, I will trot out as a riddle or a question, you know. Uh, what do you think of a man with a glass eye and a big liver and jaundice and things like that, you know. <laughs> but one of the rare diseases that 
I had tucked away in my pocket was this fairly rare condition of familial drowning, drowning that happens in generations. Uh, and I thought that would be a perfect thing to put into this land where it's all water, people get around by water, you swim before you walk. <laughs> and um, I also had the ambition, just to show you that I wasn't completely purposeless as I wrote, I like the feeling that I've had in my lifetime watching diseases described, but in a couple of decades, you know, more than just described, there is a name, there's an understanding of the molecular basis, there's a complete explanation. And so I very much wanted this novel to have that. The first generation could only name it, but by the third generation, we would be, you know, articulating what this was, its molecular basis, and perhaps a solution. I want to take a question right down here in the front. Hi, mine's not really a question, but um, so I started reading your book, I believe, in May, and um, I loved Cutting for Stone, Um, but just before that, I was having some hearing loss, and I was experiencing um, some fatigue and headaches and all of these things, and uh, I went in and was diagnosed with a unilateral hearing loss, and then I saw an ENT, and then I was diagnosed with acoustic neuroma. And so as I'm reading this book, and I'm about 600 pages in, I'm looking at my husband going, you're not going to believe what this person, (laughs) these people have. And my daughter is a genetic counselor, and so she was well aware of the fact that what I had wasn't the same as what the characters had, but I did have, similar to Lennon's character, uh, craniotomy with retrosigmoid approach to remove the acoustic neuroma three weeks ago today. Wow. And I am very happy to be here. My hearing is not good, but I have some hearing left, and I will get a hearing aid, and I will continue on with my single-sided hearing loss, but no tumor. (laughs) And your recovery. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much for for sharing that. Um, You know, I've heard it from a lot of people with acoustic neuromas, usually unilateral, not the familial kind that I describe in the book. Uh, But, you know, it's no accident that that this disease echoed with me because I really struggled with my hearing in the last uh, decade. And uh, when COVID came along and people put on masks, I realized how much lip reading I'd actually been doing. So, you know, some of the struggles that Philippos has, the embarrassment, the, the shame at times, you know, it's, it felt very personal that I was giving voice to, you know, to something very personal to me, a loss that was profound, yeah. Another question right up there. Hi, Dr. Verghese. Um, my question is, as an immigrant physician, have you ever thought of going back home to practice medicine, or rather, have you ever felt obligated to go back home to practice medicine, and if so, what kept you here? Yeah, I think that's a you know, fair question, a great question. Uh, I, I would have to ask, which country do I go back to, you know? <laughs> I was born in Ethiopia and uh, began medical school there before I spent you know, three years there, and then civil war displaced me. I came to America, worked as an orderly for a year and a half, a nursing assistant, which I think is the best medical training I ever had, truly. 
I mean, I really saw what happens to the patient in the 23 hours and 55 minutes doctors are not there. <laughs> and then I finished in India, the land of my parents' birth. But I hear you. I think there's an implicit, uh, you know, criticism. Why, why not go back to these places that have greater needs? And uh, I've gone back to Ethiopia a couple of times, gone back to India. But, you know, frankly, the answer is that uh, I arrived in America when I was 25 or 24. And uh, when I became a citizen, it was the most profound, meaningful moment in my life uh, to that point. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very proud American citizen. And whatever I'm going to do for Ethiopia and India will, will happen, you know, through being an American, whatever that shape it's going to take. Uh, clearly, I could do more, but as I get older and have more time, perhaps I will do more. So thank you for that. A question right down here on the main floor. Rumor has it that your editor threatened to stop the book when you were doing Cutting More Stone because it took so long. Um, as you weave these stories and get stuck, how do you get out? I'm sorry. Can yes, he said rumor has it that your editor uh, threatened to stop cutting for stone because it was taking so long. <laughs> Is that true? Well, um, yes, not, not to stop it, but there was a point when, um, when I was writing Cutting for Stone where it kept going in you know, many different directions. But I had a lot of really good pages. I had sold the book based on the first... 50 pages, and now the challenge was to justify wow. it. And by the time I got to about 200 pages, my editor said to me, a beautiful woman by the name of Robin Dusser, just a gifted editor, she said, Abraham, you now have to know what's going to happen <laughs> from this point on, because otherwise you're going to lose too much time. So I was actually so troubled by that that I flew to New York we sat in her office for one full day, and we hammered out the rest of the plot. And it was so liberating, you know, and I, I flew back to El Paso. I was thinking, wow, now I can really focus on the writing. But even then, <laughs> certain things like Shiva giving his liver to Marion, that happened in the writing. I mean, a couple of months later, I called her up and said, guess what? <laughs> and she loved it, so, yeah. It wasn't a rumor, it was very true, uh, he asked, um, when you write yourself into these, maybe, like, cul-de-sacs, how do you write yourself out? Typically, I don't, and I go on bullheaded for, <laughs> for a long time. No, I think there's a moment when you recognize that this is not going anywhere. Um, you know, I actually, this book has had a very tough history in the sense that um, I had a previous publisher. I took a big advance for this book. But there was a certain point during COVID where I felt that we weren't just, we weren't seeing eye to eye. I mean, I was slow on this. The length was, uh, was getting to be an issue. And so, you know, at great peril, I broke my contract. I'm still, I still owe the money, believe it or not, to pay back that advance. And I found this, you know, lovely editor, Peter Blackstock, who published The Sympathizer, Sugar Bain, and one of the earliest things he said to me is, Abraham, the book needs to be as long as it needs to be. Oh, perfect. And, uh, you know, he had the objective. You want someone you really like and trust who can tell you these 300 pages are brilliant. We're going to move them here, start the book here. 
Those, these 200 pages are just amazing, but put them in a drawer, we'll save them for another book one day maybe. <laughs> to take that, you have to trust, and uh, Peter he get, should get a lot more credit that I'm getting for, you know, if this book is succeeding. I just, I can't imagine letting this go. The, the editors that decided, we can let it go. <laughs> I mean, oh. Uh, all right, how about a couple more questions, because it's almost 9 o'clock, uh, right up there on that side. Thank you, Dr. Verghese, for the work that you've done. Um, I'm a surgeon, and the way that Where you write... You? Sorry, just wave. Right up there. Oh, right here. Good, thank you. Um, I'm a surgeon, and the way that you write about surgery and uh, so forth, your, your love and, and uh, description, both from Dr. Stone and from... Digby, uh, it just really speaks to me, and I appreciate your work on that, especially uh, when Digby is faced with the very large hydra seal that he has to deal with, and he's utterly in over his head, and your ability to capture that sense of fear and commitment, he knows he has to do something, I just thought that you, you described it so incredibly well. So my question to you is, Number one, are you sure you didn't do a surgery residency? (laughs) (laughs) And number two, how did you channel that? Because I just thought you got it so absolutely right. You know, I mean, thank you so much. Praise from a surgeon is really very special to me. (laughs) No, seriously, uh, that I got right what is something that I don't do every day. Um, If I had to do it over again, I'm not sure. I think if I had become a surgeon, I would have missed what at the time I thought was the worst thing that was happening to me, which was HIV, you know, the whole HIV epidemic, but it turned out to be the most meaningful experience of my life that I might have missed if I was a surgeon. So uh, I believe that one should only look back at the parts that are nice. Don't look back at the <laughs> parts that aren't, aren't that nice. Uh, the second part of your question is, how did I manage to do this, I think? And uh, as I said, uh, my surgical friends would let me scrub in and uh, watched them and took uh, you know, great pains to explain to me. And I would actually try and get into their head to really understand you know, the sort of saprosa text of what they were not saying. And I would call them up a few days later and, you know, that moment when this happened, what were you really thinking? I know you said this to the resident, but what were you thinking then? <laughs> you know, and, oh, and they would come up with things that were quite striking, you know, like... I remember one surgeon being impatient with the resident. I could sense it. He almost said something, and then he didn't. And uh, he told me later that he, he just had to remind himself that this kid could be a brilliant surgeon one day, but needs someone to lead him on, to sort of guide him. And you, know, and you can snap that if you just jump on top of him. And so he didn't. You know. hmm. uh, a question right down there. Hi. Uh, you know, given the wide variety of diseases and conditions out there and the fact that every patient is unique, uh, diagnoses are really difficult. And it screams for a complicated decision tree, which is going to be taken over almost certainly by artificial intelligence in the next few years. Do you feel that that is a threat to the humanity of the physician-patient relationship? Or is it simply another tool like an MRI or a CAT scan? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, uh, one piece of AI has huge potential to, you know, take this monster off our back, which is actually capture what happens between 
patient and physician and put it into the chart so that we're not sitting there with our face <laughs> turned like this, you know. By the way, well, that capability existed about 10 years ago, but, you know, it's just that all of us have invested in this software that cost us half a billion dollars, cost Harvard a billion dollars, literally, for this piece of software that, you know, is catered to billing, catered to everything but the physician's comfort. So it's a mistake of epic proportions. <laughs> the laughter you hear... I don't want to get sued, but the laughter you hear is because there was a pun on, the, on one of the words in there. But, you know, I, I think that AI is going to help us with diagnosis. It's going to help us pour through all the charts in our hospital and identify trends for us. It's going to do a lot of wonderful things. I don't think, I'd like to think that it's going to free us up to really be the kind of interpreters, handholders, you know, uh, the, the, the person who walks into that room saying, I will be with you. You still need that. I still need that. You know, um, I think it's a very important function. You don't always get to do it. Sometimes patients are not appreciative of it. They have no desire for that. They want, you know. But for the times that it does matter, I think it's so important. Especially when, quotes, there's nothing more to do. I always think that's the beginning of my role, is when there's nothing more to do, because it's the beginning of everything human we can do. We are very grateful that you launched our season of Talking Volumes this year. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all. And thanks thank to all so of much. you for coming. And thank you, Nirmala. Thank you so much, Lajabur. Gary.